Okay, today I'm on a, on a Zoom call to uh, Coffs Harbour, north of Sydney, uh, New South Wales, Australia, uh, to Paul Daly. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Paul. Um, Thanks for owner, having me, Simon. You're wel welcome. Uh, owner of ratings to win, but also a successful, would you say, professional punter? Yes, I've been professional since about 2008. Okay, thanks. Now we've obviously corresponded before we've done the uh, before we've done the interview, and I've done a bit of research on you. Uh, one of the quotes I found from you, uh, hopefully it's a correct quote, was that the mental ups and downs of being a punter are still an ongoing source of torment. So why did you do it? Look, I think everyone suffers from that, and um, it, it's simply just part and parcel of the game. Really, I mean. You know, we all have ups and downs, winning runs, losing runs. Sometimes they're extended. Obviously, when, you, when you're going very well, um, you tend to sort of um, feel a little bit invincible. And when things go poorly, you, you question yourself. And, and so that therein lies the torment. So it's just one of the, one of the things that we get used to. Um, it's never easy. And it's something that you have to continue to work on and continue to monitor. Uh, and the way in which I go about doing that is I simply go back to my past betting records and examine those runs and examine what happened when I came out of those and things corrected themselves and uh, really the variance sort of takes care of it. So, um, you, you know, you never you never you never get too cocky in this game. And you've been, I mean, you've been tormenting yourself and winning. Uh, mm -hmm. Winning punter since 1997 and a professional since 2008. Is that right? Uh, professional since 2008. I, I was a winning punter prior to that, except not in the professional sense. It was still recreational. Um, I, I started going to the races in 1979. Uh, I went with a, um, a, a mate of mine and his dad, and I had no idea, and, and betting and gambling was, was very frowned upon in my family. Um, so I, I had a very small bet. I think it was 50 cents each way and the, the horse ran third and uh, that was pretty much it for me. And so it was a case of then trying to get to the races whenever I could. But um, I probably only went three or four times in the next couple of years. Um, and it was in 1982 that um, I then sort of came across Don Scott's book, but um, winning the winning way. And that, that sort of put me on a path to, um, I suppose, uh, learning a lot more about the game and um, making plenty of mistakes along the way. Okay, I just want to just briefly touch on your uh, on your, your early background because you're not from a racing family. You're from no. a staunch Catholic family. Um, do you think maybe it's because it was so anti-gambling and racing that you fell in love with it so much? Oh, look, I think more about the the atmosphere and the, the mayhem, the organised chaos of it all. Um, you know, the, the racetracks just uh, one, got wonderful colour, especially back in those days. I mean, there would have been a couple of hundred bookmakers um, back then easily between the rails, um, the paddock and the outer and, and the ledger. And um, it, just just looking at all that money change hands and um, the yelling and the, the movement, uh, it was all too much. It got me. Yeah, the, I I can totally understand it. The other side of the world, exactly the same with me. But um, so tell us a bit about Don Scott's The Winning Way book. Uh, I understand it's quite maths based. Uh look, it's probably uh, more process based, I think, than than math. I mean, obviously, you've got to you've got to be pretty good at arithmetic, I think, to to understand odds and fractions, and and that's that's a huge help. Um, and it's just a little bit disappointing, actually. That, 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 
a lot of the new age don't really sort of um, understand it. But look, it's more about process um, um, workflows. Um, obviously, weight ratings were a big part of it. Um, Don was one of the early, I suppose, um, people that, that talked about ratings. And, you know, class-based or weight-based ratings, they they sort of formed the basis of how I did things or how I learned how to do the form. Uh, look, it took a lot of years. I remember going to not long after getting the book and um, putting some rough numbers together. I went to a race meeting and I couldn't believe how generous the bookmakers were about these selections I was backing. And as it turned out, um, after the races later on, I, I realised that I hadn't taken the, the weight of over the limit off the horse. So consequently, I was backing um, um, horses that were, I was getting some good odds about. So, uh, but... Yeah, look, it, it was it was certainly the thing that sort of put me on my direction that I'm on currently. Were you were you sort of good at were you sort of gifted at arithmetic and stuff at school? Was that something you liked maths and problem solving and that like sort of thing? Problem solving, yes. I wouldn't wouldn't say I was gifted. Uh, I was pretty good at arithmetic, um, but uh, you know, I sort of I sort of practiced hard and worked hard and and I suppose um, got better at it. So yeah, certainly wouldn't say I was gifted at it. Okay, now I was interested. You, um, despite being heavily into horse racing by the time you left school, you went to uh, successfully deal currency. Is that sort of gambling without the 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 extra risk, or is it just needing, um, you know more more respectable gambling? Look for the investors. Yes, uh, I wasn't uh, exposed to that side of it. Uh, it was on the sales side of it. So we sold uh, leveraged indemnity contracts and. Uh, look, there was obviously a lot more going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about. Look, I, I really didn't know anything about what I was doing then. It was just, um, it was just a way to earn a living. Uh, and uh, I suppose, yes, it, it, there was a gambling element to it. Sure, like all markets. Would, would, there, would there have been any sort of option to get into horse racing as a, a profession at the time? Uh, what stemming from the um, currency? I mean, when, when you, when, well, when you decided to go, when you decided to go into currency and you know take a sort of proper job in the city or whatever, would there have been an option to sort of work for a bookie or work in bookmaking, or was it never sort of uh, something that never crossed your mind at the time? It, look, it was never really on the radar. I mean, I still tried to get to the races as much as I could, um, mainly weekends. Uh, so you know, it was more about uh, developing a career in the finance side that that later led to um, my own consulting business where we sort of advised on small mergers and acquisitions which led on to an insolvency path in my career um, and then ultimately I, I sold my business back in 2008. Okay so you were still going you were still going to the races on Saturdays the, the betting ring as you've already yeah. talked about sounds a really vibrant place buzzy noise chaos yeah. I mean, did you get to know any of the big players? Were you were you sort of learning from them, or were you just there soaking it all up? Look, look, as a young, uh, late teenager, I owned one suit. Um, I went to the races on a Saturday. I figured that the best place to sort of become known, uh, or at least learn the game, was on the members' enclosure, or what we call the members' enclosure. Um, so I'd, you know, get a ticket and uh, go there. And I, look, I did manage to latch onto one large and successful punter and I really pestered him constantly uh, and eventually he sort of um, gave me the time of day and helped me a lot in terms of understanding 
um, the value of inside information and I was able to sort of get a fair bit of that from him. Um, but, you know, in, in but I suppose it was not so much just inside information, but also an understanding of the way in which the market was going to move and the direction it was going to take. And, and so I learned a lot of patience and timing about when to bet. So you were doing your homework, you were doing your your um your your weights and all the rest of it, and then you go to the races and speak to these guys. Wasn't there ever the temptation to just think, well, all I've got to do is ask my new professional punting pal, and I don't need to do any work? You, you were still keen to learn the mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. So what I what I was really trying to do was marry up what I could learn with what I came up with, and and you know I found that when the information married up that I was more successful or my 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 guesses were better so when you were when you you you'd taken um Don's book and you were sort of doing your your wakes and everything when did you start getting into speed figures look initially I used to maintain race times or overall race times only as a guide to track condition I didn't really think about it in the context of a time rating or a speed rating. And there really wasn't any talk about that um, when I was going through those class and weight ratings. And I, I started reading a few books um, in the 90s and um, it sort of captured my interest in regards to time and sectionals and so forth. Um, not a lot of talk about sectionals then, um, but certainly overall time figures. And I started sort of putting together some numbers. Uh, it took a couple of years to sort of assemble and what I found was the marriage of both the time, class and weight um, was, was a better combination than what I'd previously used, which was just the, the class and weight ratings um, that Scott sort of taught in his books. Um, one of the, the things that isn't much talked about out of the Don Scott books was his ideas on um, mapping horses or, or penalising horses uh, because of you know a bad map or, or or bonusing horses because of a good map, um, you know th there's a there's a few pages in the book that really sort of highlighted that as a as a key aspect and that sort of resonated with me fairly early. So I sort of went about trying to work out how to put together a speed map. Um, I wasn't very good at it uh, to begin with, but it, it's something that I continued to work on and and develop over time, and it's an absolute integral part of what I do now. Okay, just go a bit deeper into that, you know, explain what a speed map is. So a speed map essentially is is, is a, a sort of a graphical representation of where you think the horses will settle in, in an upcoming race. Um, you know, and I suppose what you're looking for is not only the position, but whether or not your horse is um, going to experience difficulties in getting into that position, uh, you know, whether it's likely to be caught wide or, or have to go back from a wide gate or whatever the case may be. But also the map tells you what the pace shape is likely to be. Um, if you understand how fast these horses can actually go up early, then you can start to put some context around what the pace scenario might look like in the race. And that will pretty much tell you, in addition to the positions that they're in, which horses are going to be advantaged and disadvantaged. All right, so you're, you're trying to anticipate not only the, the business end of the race, the actual result, but what's going to happen throughout it. Yeah, and and it all comes back to a number. So that that adjustment that I make because of a horse's map 
um, both positive and negative, really sort of um, adjusts the rating figures that I might just have in the in a raw sense. So uh, I think I think a big part of my advantage lies in that. Okay, and you you mentioned the art of watching videos. So can you explain <clears throat> about that and what you saw that others didn't? Look, I think um, videos are pretty well, um, certainly not not they're, they're relevant, uh, and they there is advantage to be gained from it. Um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to to do it properly. Uh, and you've got to have the resources, otherwise you're pretty much limited to, you know, a, a small jurisdiction, if you like, uh, in terms of what you could actually get through as one person. But I always looked for the less obvious merit in a horse's run. So everyone sees a flashing light and, you know, the horse storming home from the back in the field and, and so forth. But uh, I was looking for, for other things that um, perhaps weren't as obvious, um, you know, one of them being... Uh, horses that were doing too much work early, um, for example, or horses that were sort of being um, restrained unnecessarily early. Uh, and so, you know, either using too much energy or, or conserving too much energy, and they don't necessarily have the wind, but um, they'd, they'd be running races better than what they were entitled to, considering the actual shape or the pay shape of the race. Okay, so is that polite way of saying spotting uh, ones that weren't quite so busy? Um, certainly, uh, for the ones that are being restrained, um, sure, uh, heavily. So, you know, horses are sort of put into an unwinnable position, uh, just simply because of the dynamics of the tempo of the race and, and also maybe how far they get back from the lead, but also horses that perhaps, are, uh, the, the timing of the ride is misjudged and, uh, or they're attacked, you know, for the lead and, and they're just doing too much work or they're working wide on, on a fast pace, you know, those sorts of things. So, um, I mean, there's lots of them and they're certainly not um, proprietary in any way, but it does take a, a bit of skill to get good at it. And is it still something that you do heavily? I don't have to. Um, unfortunately, I've got a team that, that does it for me, um, but we don't write comments like I used to. I used to write comments uh, shorthand, if you like, about or describing a horse's run. Um, that's no longer the case. It's all about just one simple, well, I say simple, one adjustment number. So one number that effectively gets added to the horse's raw performance rating um, that, that attempts to normalise for any in-run advantages and disadvantages. Yep. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, Paul, you went full-time betting in 2008. So, you you know, you gave yourself you gave yourself a fair apprenticeship before you decided to take the plunge. So why, why was the time right then? I'd sold my business. Uh, I was well-capitalised, and I had the time and the energy to devote to it. Um, I always said to myself that if I was ever going to do it full-time, that it would have to be capable of replacing... Uh, the income that I was earning, which was pretty good uh, out of my business. So um, I needed to be winning fairly large amounts of money to be able to make it worthwhile. Otherwise, I, I just wouldn't justify it. Um, and I'd continue to do it as a serious hobby punter, albeit a winning punter, um, and just focus on the weekend. So I suppose I knew in advance um, that time was 
sort of coming to an end in the business cycle. And I'd, I'd been approached by a number of interested parties and managed to do a, uh, an, a handsome transaction. And uh, that sort of set me up for then attacking, um, I suppose, the, the, the road that lay ahead. Um, part of that, though, was to, to develop uh, a more serious database. And I knew that I needed a, a fair amount of resources to do that. Okay, and then we're going to, we'll talk about ratings and win a bit later, but was that something that you had in your mind when you decided to go professional? Was that something that developed sort of parallel? Look, the commercialization of it um, wasn't obvious at the time, and it was something that I had to consider. But um, yeah, as you say, we'll, we'll probably get into that in more detail. But um, the, the main focus was making sure I was, you know, amply uh, capitalized to, to be able to turn over the money that I needed to uh, to get the margin, um, which which obviously results in in uh, a certain amount of dollars won, uh, and uh, that was that was the focus. So it was more of a, I think of it as a business plan, if you like, um, behind the betting, you know, and going professional. It's a big step, you know. You got to you got three young kids, you got um, uh, lots of uh, business interests and investments and mortgages and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you, you've got to be able to, you know, turn a decent profit. And you must have had a very supportive partner. Yeah, well, I'm lucky in that respect. And I think choice of partner is just probably the most important decision any of us ever make in life. But um, she she had a fair bit of grounding with me uh, prior to that. You know, I'd go to the races on a Saturday and, you know, on a good day, in a bad day, you could win or lose a hundred thousand. Um, we were, we were betting pretty well, so she was used to it. You know, she knew that um, the the ups and downs and and what it meant, uh, but she also knew that um, we were never really at risk because of, uh, of the way in which I quarantined the the funds I needed for betting, separate to everything else that we did. Well, so that's, I'm, I was going to say when you when you sat down to uh, study your first race after you'd uh, made your decision. Was it like a nerve wracking? But if you were betting to win hundred grand as an amateur, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying on a big on a big day, you yeah. could win or lose as much as that. So if you you had a complete strip out, you might do a hundred, and if you had, you know, one or two best days of the year, you might win a hundred. Yeah, but that's that's still quite 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 lofty for uh, you know before you went professional. So you know, so you're in it big already so you you've come out of the business financially secure so you're in a fairly you're in a good comfort zone to start i, I read that um, you were a fan of betting exotics um tell us a bit about that because uh, i mean a lot of punters would probably dismiss them as mug bets wouldn't they but mug punters got, probably dismiss them as mug bets I don't know. the corporate bookmakers make a ton of money out of multis as you know um it's certainly not something that i get involved with uh, look, my, my market was essentially the quadrilla bet, which is essentially a, a four-leg all-up on a selected um, races each meeting. And uh, the, the the tax, if you like, that, that's attributed to each leg is 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 fairly conservative compared to some of the other multis um, and exotic bets. And so that was the attraction for me. I, I had a computer program that would basically come up with the combinations and the amounts to wager on each of those combinations. So uh, on a on a typical quadrilla, we might 
outlay anywhere between you know 200 and 800 combinations um sometimes more so uh, all for differing amounts and, and those would be produced into what we call batch files or batch bets and submitted through to tabcorp um, at the time which is our paramutual operator here that um the value that we got out of those was astounding you'd often get um, you know, you, you you might price your favourite way at fifty to one, and get as much as eighty or hundred to one uh, in the quadrilla. So we, we were able to win a fair bit of money doing that. Uh, it, it accounted for about ninety odd percent of my total turnover at one stage, uh, but it got to the point where the big syndicates uh, here uh, eroded the value just by simply ensuring that the um, uh, if you like, the dividends that were going to be paid uh, were closer to the true odds of, of the actual combination winning. And what they would do is really just um, play it for the rebate. So if you were getting rebates, um, that was the way ultimately um, that you had to make money out of it. So I, I suppose that over time, my quadrilla action just continued to dwindle uh, as a percentage of my overall betting action. There's interest. I've, I've spoken to quite a few professional punters. It's amazing how they all do things quite differently. You mentioned that uh, the big bookies make fortunes from the multis. Uh, one professional punter I spoke to describes a multiple bet as a weapon of mass destruction. So, I mean, would you, if you had a couple of real <laughs> good things that you fancy, would that, would you not ever consider doing a double or something like that? Is that or uh, you know? Uh, look, I, I still do. I still do some quadrilla betting. Um, it is limited. Uh, it's mainly when the when the pools are much bigger that that I get involved uh, or on bigger meetings. Um, look, I I don't really think of it that way. I, each race is its own entity and its own challenge. And look, it's hard enough to back one winner, let alone um, you know four. Okay, so let's talk about uh, ratings to win. So you developed this powerful program to help you analyze the races and win as a punter. Um, Surely it would have been much more valuable if you just kept it to yourself. Yeah, sure, it would be. Um, the problem, though, uh, Simon, is that, you know, at that time that I was going professional, I, I had to invest substantial amounts of money into building it. And most of that was salary wages, programmers. Um, the data that I was accessing and acquiring was becoming more and more expensive because we don't just use the public data feed. And it meant that I had to win, obviously, a lot more money uh, on top of what I needed to, to live. Uh, and the, the costs and the capital outlays were huge. And I ended up investing seven figures, large seven, well, fairly decent seven-figure sum in building it. And we, we spend that much a year now just maintaining it between staff. and Because it, it's just it's really manual grunt work, a lot of donkey work involved. Uh, in getting it to that level. So subscriptions seemed like the only option uh, at the time in 2012 as a means of mitigating a lot of those costs so that, you know, I could continue to bet and um, and not just have all those those winnings swallowed up by costs. Okay, no, I've, it said, I've read it can sift through 3 million, <clears throat> 3 million components. Um, no, not, not, not so much 3 million components. The computers are all set up in into tier four data centers and uh so they they run constantly and the calculations that we would do in any given day would be run into the three three or so million so it surpasses anything that any the best form student could do 
you know, physically could actually get through it, it, much more detail. I, you couldn't, you couldn't do it as a person. Um, you, you need, you need the assistance of technology to do it uh, at the scale that, that we're able to do it. It was 2012, the first time you made it commercial. Yes, it was. Yeah. How so, much has it evolved since then? Uh, it hasn't stopped evolving, actually. Uh, we do regular updates. Um, most of that's driven by research and development that my my team do at, at my direction. And um, any new ideas uh, that, that are derived from that process make it into the software. Uh, and any client that has it uh, gets the benefit of that. So I don't sort of hold back. It's interesting. You say that you spend money... Uh on private information you don't trust a lot of the official information so i assume that means going time figures that sort of uh, speed uh, timing of the races that sort of thing look look the only thing that we keep from the official record is the date the track the race number and the saddlecloth number um uh, from the horse everything else is binned and created in-house so margins times uh, track speeds, you know verifying jockey claims overweights distances rail positions obviously times and sections um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff too on top of that that we do that uh, makes it unique okay so how much of your edge would vanish if the official figures suddenly became as accurate as the ones that you source i think a fair bit actually um uh, it would make it pretty difficult to win if if i didn't have that data if I was just simply using what everyone else is using, it's it's like anything, right? You 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 are using everything that's widely available. The the edge has got to be reduced. Um, that's why most of the betting teams, you know, create their own derivatives uh, of data and uh, and information for those purposes, uh, because it otherwise makes it too difficult. Okay, so for anybody that's familiar with your system, I I I haven't had the um. I haven't been able to, to sort of see it in action or anything. So excuse me if some of these questions seem a bit obvious. But does the program does the program price races for the for your punters? Will it would it give would it come up with the prices that they expect it to be? It can. It it can be instructed to produce an automatic market. Uh, and that automatic market can be um, varied based on different parameters that you set as the user. Um, I myself start with an automatic market as, as a starting point when I do the form. Uh, look, my process is pretty tried and true. I, I don't deviate from it really at all. And uh, it's it's just a workflow that, that we start, you know, well well and truly before a meeting commences. So um, it is possible to to get snapshots of, you know, the leading chances in the race and and maybe make some intuitive judgments and and bet that way if 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 you choose to do it. Um, look, I I I know the way I do it works for me. So um, it it pretty much starts on a on a Wednesday for a Saturday. Is it is it for people like you that are form experts, or if somebody like me suddenly decided to start betting on Australian racing, could I get your subscribe to you, and then the bets are going to be chucked at me for no effort apart no. from pulling my money up? No, the, the, the zero effort, zero return, pretty much. Um, that's the way it works. And uh, no, no, no program is going to provide the magic button. So uh, look, it, it, there are a lot of tools there that certainly make the process a lot easier and reduce a lot of the work time that you would otherwise spend doing. 
if you were taking it individually. But look, I think anyone who is a good handicapper knows that it takes time and effort to achieve that. Um, you know, I've seen some of the guests that you've had on in the past and, you know, most recently Peter Lawrence, uh, who's a friend of mine. And by the way, I'm, I'm the annoying guy that rings him on the Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, look, he, he and I sort of do things in a very similar fashion and people like Rob Waterhouse, I, I, I trust would do things similar as well. Um, we've got our own um, herbs and spices that we apply and we think a bit differently, but, um, you know, essentially, you know, you can have three different people look at a race and come up with totally different opinions. That's just the nature of the game and that's what makes markets. Yeah, we're gonna... um, so your, your personal, your personal betting, would you still pro you still price a race up yourself? So would your pricing be Absolutely. the be the be all in it? Well, the main thing you're looking for value. Yeah, yeah, looking to back the overs. I mean, not it's not a simple case of you blindly bet the bet the overs in any race or every race, but you need to have um, an opinion, and a price is really just a, a number that expresses that. So. Um, I would never take under the odds or under my price, um, but it just doesn't mean that a horse is, you know, marked at five to one and it's ten to one doesn't automatically warrant a bet. Uh, there are other exterminating, or well, there, there are other factors that you really need to consider. Um, it just depends on the race and the setup. I mean, I, I might have marked that horse five to one, but it, it was a bit of a guess because of unknown factors regarding fitness or or other matters. Okay, so, so you would respect the market if if it was going totally against what you you came up with, rather than be bullish and think they've got it totally wrong. I'm going to have a press up. Look, if if I if a horse is say resuming from a spell, then I'll certainly tune into the market intelligence late and factor that in um, to to what I've done and and make adjustments as required. Uh, if I uh, got a race where all the form's exposed, the horses are into their preparation. I'm confident that I've got it right, and the market um, has a different opinion to me. Then I'll I'll back myself uh, with more confidence. Okay, it's interesting you say that it, um, a, pro a price wouldn't be a, uh, an automatic bet. Um, so because a lot you know a lot of people I've spoken to would say that if they make something five to one, it's seven to one, then they would back it regardless. That, that wouldn't be something you would do? Not necessarily. Um, look, there are plenty of examples where I would, but um, other times, no. So, you know, horses, as I said, horses that are resuming uh, or have in, um, you know, interrupted preparations or may have been scratched a few times since their last run, and which might indicate a setback, for example, um, those types of runners are runners I'm a little bit more cautious about, and I'm looking for market guidance uh, on those for sure. Uh, if I'm uh, opposing a horse just simply because I don't think the uh, performance figures are there and the horse has had you know plenty of starts and uh, I can't really see any weaknesses in my process, then um, it doesn't really matter uh, that I market 10 to 1 and the market's 3 or 4 to 1. I, I know ultimately the market over large data is, is accurate uh, and, and there's an efficient um, uh, medium of... of, of representation of the horse's chance but there's obviously individual circumstances where they get it wrong and that's what we're looking to capitalize as punters okay um now bankroll management 
be interested to know, how do you stake and how do you bankroll your personal bets? I bet to collect, and look, I'm not alone in this. I think most people do something similar. I bet to collect the percentage of my bankroll um, based off my rated price. So the same as what Peter would do. Uh, probably the difference is uh, I, I sort of rate the races with a confidence level attached to them so and really what i'm talking about is the confidence level in my market and um if it's a normal or a fairly typical level of confidence then i wouldn't change my bet sizing if i was less confident i'd reduce that bet size but ultimately um you know if i mark a horse two to one um and i'm backing it to win you know ten thousand dollars and I'm having $5,000 on the horse. Well, you know, if it's four to one or five to one, I'm not going to change the bet if I'm confident with my assessment. Is all your betting done with a traditional bookmaker or do you use the betting exchanges or do you go racing still? Look, I used to go um, to the track regularly and I went back pre-COVID um, for, for a few years and I used to fly to Sydney twice a week from Brisbane, which I was living in then, uh, to, to go to the races. And that was an expensive exercise, obviously, with airfares and you know, accommodation and meals and transport and so forth. Um, but the advantage was there in doing that. Uh, since COVID occurred, uh, the, the the track's dead um, for all in, you know for all the reports I hear. I still ring through a few bets to bookmakers on track, um, but most of it's betting with multiple corporates uh, because they all have to bet you the the, the minimum bet anyway. So. Um, a little bit on the exchange, but even that's getting tough too because of the the cost in transacting that has changed too over the few, over the last few years. Yeah, something I was interested in, I, I read that I think would resonate with most punters, even if they are the you know the most fastidious or keeping records and stuff. If fifty percent of your bankroll is gone, you'd be able to bet the same as you would normally. If the answer is no, then you'll find it tough to survive. Um, so, what's your advice if that's us? What do we do? Well, it happens quite quite often enough. Anyway, um, look, I'd say in the last uh, four or five years, it's it's happened to me uh, on three occasions uh, where I have sort of got close to that or just over that fifty percent drawdown, and it's um, it's certainly not a pleasant experience, and it does you know do your head in and 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 it affects it can affect your judgment. I think that I take solace in going back through my records, as I said before, and and really sort of drilling down into those periods and seeing how I came out of them and what were the decisions and what were the timeframes um, like that led to you know a resurrection in in, in profit. Uh, and sometimes it, it's um, it's it's fairly quick. Uh, look, I, I remember in two thousand and six. I was probably down about 62, 63% of my betting bank uh, come September. So even though I'd had some winning months, uh, the overall drawdown was was horrific. And, you know, it was it was pretty scary. Um, but, uh, and this is obviously one of the catalysts that led me to have the confidence to, to go pro. Um, I recovered all of that and ended up winning six figures by the end of December. So, the period of September to December was just magnificent, um, but the first eight months of the year were were shocking. I think you 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 bet it was a five percent of your your total bankroll. It seems to be quite a big figure. 
Not a bit, bit to collect. A bit to collect. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so if I've marked a horse even money, then you know I'm betting to collect five units or five percent of my bankroll. Okay. So, what would so you I'm, if? Yeah. So, so if you add, I don't know, whatever your, I'm sure you don't want to talk about figures, but what percentage of your bankroll would be your biggest bet? Look, I, I have a maximum, which is about 3%. Okay. So do you is, – is your staking dependent on what that bankroll is at the time? So when you got to that point when you were 60-odd percent down on it, are you still bet into your figures for the total bankroll to begin with? I did then. Uh, I, I changed what I do now. So I do review it and I do reset the number. Um, I, I experimented with actually – resetting it after every race and and found that it was just too much to think about um given that you know often there's only five or ten minutes between races in in different states if you're betting in different states so it was a bit too uh, of an administrative burden to to manage and it really didn't add anything um to the bottom line so look if i'm if i'm on a very if i start to get onto a good run um and you know let's just say i'm winning twice my expectation then i might make an adjustment to the bank and, and bet slightly more yeah you mentioned that um you know everything evolves all the time it's a continuous learning curve when do you when do you decide that an edge that you had has gone before following it over a cliff i think that a lot of people tend to play the hot hand and i'm not a subscriber to that idea uh I think it's a dangerous way to bet, uh, and um, so so for me, I do regular market research and I examine the factors that that I rate as important. And what I do do look for is is changes in the way the market reacts to those. So, but that's probably done more on a biannual basis than than a, you know a weekly or a monthly or anything else. So twice a year, I'd sit down and do a detailed review of the market. And and have a look at what it's doing and you know what it's getting right, what it's getting wrong. I suppose that covers my next step. The ability to maintain composure and faith in your process is paramount. I mean, have I, you absolutely. ever have you ever had any self doubt at all? Yes, <laughs> I, I think everyone has. Um, you know, when you're going through a bad run, it's it's natural to 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 um, think that you're you're doing something wrong or that. You know, maybe you should look to change something. Not a bad day or a bad week. I mean, you know, we have those all the time. I mean, we still have losing months, but that happens. Um, uh, thankfully, not too often, but but it does. You know, it's still probably two or three times a year you, you might lose, um, whether it be a very small amount or a larger amount. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it does. Have, it, it affects you and it affects your, your, your mood and, you know, there's nothing worse than, having a terrible Saturday and then having to go out to dinner on a Saturday night and um, try and be entertaining to, to your guests. Uh, the uh, Peter mentioned uh, the British corporates that came in and sort of messed things up, but they, they, they also have to abide by the minimum bet rule, which they don't have to do over here where they can limit you to nothing. Um, is that something that works in your favour? Because the argument over here is that they would bet to 150% and nobody will get any value and nobody can win. Is that what's happened in Australia? 
Look, the, the betting percentages have certainly risen over time, and that's not a good thing um, as a punter in a, in a technical sense, uh, and it's certainly harder to find value. Um, that's that's definite. The It's not the minimum bet laws, I think, that have been the catalyst for that. It's been the, the taxation regime that, that's happened in Australia. So we have what we call a point of consumption tax, or what the bookmakers do, and they essentially have to pay tax based on where the actual punters um, domicile. And that they've continued to increase the rate of those taxes, as well as the costs on corporate bookmakers for things like race fields legislation. And so that has actually affected, I think, the market percentages more than what the minimum bet laws um, require them to bet. I mean, it's only to win $2,000, Simon. And look, you know, that's, it's insane compared to what it used to be. So how many bookmakers would you need to uh, bet up to that limit to get the sort of bets on that you, that you would want? I've got 38 accounts. Um, and of those, I would say that about half of them are active on a more regular basis. Um, uh, some of them are just you know, sporadic in terms of when I use them. Um, uh, so, yeah, you, you need it's logistically tougher because you need to have help doing that. You can't just um, attack 16 bookmakers, for example, at once. You need to actually have people helping you uh, put that money on. And um, you're not allowed to use automation in Australia as a punter. Uh, if the bookmaker believes that you are using automation or they they can compile some form of evidence to suggest that that's what you're doing, then um, they don't have to bet you. So uh, it's not fair, but it's, it's the reality. So essentially, I have three guys that help me on a Saturday um, and also I use a commission agent. Okay, so... People like to learn from guys like you. So what's the single most important bit of good practice as a punter that separates a winning punter from a losing one if you're advising somebody? Uh, I would say recording your bets uh, and recording all the details associated with that bet. You know, price, bookmaker, um, what, the, what your price was versus say top fluctuation versus tote and using that as a tool to analyze and and improve your processes and your decision making um, that's probably equally as important as bankroll management making sure that you don't overbet and I, I looked on your website you've got several endorsements there from uh, professional punters that are successful using using your system uh, ratings to win you answered the question earlier. Everybody does it. They use it as a tool, as part of their as part of their armory. So it it never it's never going to endanger the profitability the profitability for everyone else using it. If all these professionals are winning using your system, look, we limit we limit the number of clients that can actually get access to it anyway. But you're right. I mean, there there there, there could be some impact if um, we're all playing the same market or playing the same niche. But I think there's a, enough diversification in the in the client base um, that are betting semi-professionally and professionally to to warrant um, or, or to really sort of nullify the effect of of um, anything negative. 
you know, I, I could be doing Form 1, say, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Someone else might be doing Western Australia. Someone else might specialise in Tasmania. I'm, ju I'm just picking picking out some random scenarios here, but that's the extent of it. And we all do it a bit differently. And, you know, Peter's, um, for example, is a client of mine, and he uses our, our database, and uh, he and I will come up with totally different answers on on a race. So I think it it's really more about the tools and what it can deliver for you in terms of time savings and accuracy than it is about, you know, replicating opinions across the market. Okay, and the final question, Paul. Does your own personal uh, version of ratings to win contain an edge that you keep up your sleeve for your own personal use? Absolutely, um, it does. But it's not something that can't be achieved by any client using it. So it's more about the single adjustment number that, that we come up with, which gets applied to the rating uh, and things like the way in which we rate jockeys and trainers um, and, and score those, as well as the map adjustments and bonuses and penalties that are applied. So that, that would be, I would say, the only difference. Um, uh, but as I said, you know, anyone can achieve that if they're prepared to put in the work and, and, um, and do it for themselves. Okay, there's def there's definitely a future for professional backing in Australia for the foreseeable. Look for the foreseeable future. Yes, it's getting tougher. That that, that is beyond any doubt. Um, I mean, governments and principal racing authorities need to temper their their greed for the for the tax dollar. I think. Uh, I mean, any tax on on the bookmaker is essentially a tax on the punter who is racing's only customer, and um, that's. It's disappointing that they don't have the foresight to to see that. But I think that the the hangover from COVID, certainly in terms of the betting landscape, is is starting to bite on some of the operators. So we'll probably see some form of um, consolidation over the next few years. But I don't know where that's where that's going to go to in terms of um, alleviating some of the the pressure on on margins. Okay, well, brilliant, Paul Daly. It's been great talking to you. Before we go, what's that in the background? Uh, Ramwick Racecourse. It's it's it's. I'm not there. It's just um, something I put up because I've got all these boxes in my office because uh, we're currently building. So um, we're sort of um, it's, it's it's not set up the way it would normally be. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's the mounting yard there at Ramwick. Excellent. Okay, nice and sunny for us people back home here in the, in winter. Okay, Paul Daly. It's been a, a great talking to you. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Simon.